This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Wednesday, October 12th, 2020. 22. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about Andor Episode 6, VI. This is Slash Home Editorial Director Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Star Wars expert, and he writes up uh, the recaps on SlashFilm.com, Brian Young. Thanks for having me. I'm just thrilled to be alive. <laughs> Guys, that was an episode. It sure, it sure was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah things uh, happened yeah a lot of stuff happened and uh we'll get into it but i guess let's let's lead with a uh, brief thoughts brad what did you think of episode six uh great episode fully delivered on the the promise uh of a heist there were some surprise uh twists that i didn't see coming um and i appreciate the the carryover of you know and also fulfillment of certain uh, thematic elements and, you know, uh, less action oriented things that happen in this episode, um, as well. So yeah, just, uh, loving this show. It, it feels like it just keeps getting better. Yeah. I thought it was just as thrilling and as intense as I had anticipated this episode. Like it, the build up to this episode was, was, you know, it, it even surpassed what the build up was. And, uh, I will say that I was expecting the mission to go a lot worse, Yes. Although it did go go pretty badly, a lot a lot worse. Like like everyone but Vel and Cassian died. How much worse did you want it to get? <laughs> I mean, you, you do have some good points there. I, I mean, I guess they they made off with the money, so or the credits, I should say. So I, I I was expecting things to go more worse than <laughs> more worse than most everyone dying. <laughs> Yes. Okay, uh, Brian, what are your thoughts on this episode? No, I thought this was a great send-up to classic World War II movies, right? There's so much Dirty Dozen in this episode, um, and it, it just made me happy. And the way it tied things together, there was definitely an anxiety around not cutting back to some of the other stories that we'd, be, we'd been interlacing this story with. Um throughout the body of the piece but when we actually got the wrap-ups at the end it felt very satisfying and i was i was very into it yeah okay let, let's get into it because i i think we want to talk about this episode uh this is the longest episode so far 53 minutes and it's titled the eye which i think is because of the the thing that happens in the sky brian I, I often ask you this but i don't think there is one this time it, it does the eye have any dual meaning I I I actually think it, it it can right the Imperial Security Bureau where everyone's watching, and everyone is watching all of these decisions that everyone is making and trying to like piece everything together. The the eye is the Empire itself. I, I wish you could see the smile on my face, Brian, as I, also, I, I see you trying to, to put something together. Uh, what maybe, you say, Brad? 
maybe, maybe this is a little bit of a reach to, but considering how this episode opens, it opens, you know, with like that waiting that before the heist to begin. And uh, the eye of a hurricane is typically where like it's things are the most calm as the storm rages around it. And so this feels like that kind of calm before the storm situation. Okay, I give you I give you both credit uh, for, for those hey, readings. We, we went to high school English class class, Peter. okay so the the beginning as you said it it, it's the calm before the storm it starts off at the the morning of the heist and nemec couldn't sleep uh, and he's baffled that his he has faith and couldn't calm himself but andor has nothing yet slept like a baby so what what do you think is going on here what, what do you Nemec, think this speaks of? I think Nemec feels very betrayed by Cassian. Um, and, and I think it's obvious that Nemec is very much a true believer and is very naive and sort of put that faith in Cassian and have that rug pulled out from under him and have to rely on him during something so important. Um, yeah, it's weighing on him. Have well, not, and not, not only that, too, I, I also like the moment here where uh, Diego Luna has just a quick glance on his face when uh, he tells him he's like he's like you have nothing and like he almost like he takes offense at first and then considers it and like in a in just in the, a brief second you feel like he, he goes through this like emotional thing where he's like oh like shit like you know maybe I don't you know have anything yeah and maybe that will come into play later on okay so meanwhile at the garrison the commandant uh, explains that the Aldani are easy to manipulate and through a series of choices they have dwindled the group of 500 pilgrims down that started the trek to witness the eye down to nearly 10 percent of that um i'm a little shocked by this i'll 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 say that and the reason why i'm shocked by this whole explanation is it's cool to see how the imperials are kind of orchestrating things but at the same time I just expected the Empire to use their power and force and threat and guns and technology and, you know, weapons to basically make these people do whatever they want. And it seems like I'm actually shocked that the Empire is willing to play these games. I'm not necessarily shocked, but I think that it's it's actually better and even more diabolical and heinous this way like it this really i think makes the empire even more evil and sinister because they're they're like making it seem like they're playing nice and giving the aldanis this like option and like doing something you know nice for them and like i think the worst thing about this as, as we'll get to later is how they pretend to respect their culture when really they're just completely fucking them over and obviously the aldanis are not stupid enough to buy you know actually buy into it uh, as evidenced by you know how their their leader responds to uh, that whole situation, but yeah, this is this is some like real villain shit. Um, the thing I like about it is that it feels like a microcosm for what we're seeing with the rebellion, right? Like the empire is reducing the amount of options in front of people to the point where only that small percentage is going to like it's it's this it's speaking to this microcosm of the entire rebellion. And only that small percentage are going to have that choice where they are going to fight back. And and the arrogance of the imperial wisdom is that they're going to be able to fight back against that very small percentage. And that's going to be OK. And why use your guns against everybody if uh, you can if you can manipulate them into doing what you want anyway? It it, it smacks very much of. And, the, and then not only that, but they're going to use them to build the like the. Uh... What are they building? They're building an air, air force new, base. New, yeah, yeah, the new air base. But it it reminds me a little bit of the Germans with uh, Vichy in World War II, right? Where it's like we're going to occupy France. We don't actually need to send troops there. Like we'll just have. Well, we don't need to like actually govern. We're going to let them have the illusion of governing themselves, and we're just going to take what we want. And it's easier to have this level of normality to everything, so we can extract everything we want rather than the 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 power that it takes and the crew that it takes to actually put everyone under a boot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so they, they use an old Imperial battle radio to contact Vel, 
who confirms they are locked in. Actually, they use the uh, the call sign Echo One, which is, is that a callback to Empire Strikes Back, or is that just like common radio uh, yeah, terminology? It's more, yeah, it's more so just I think common like radio lingo. You know, um, the uh, what, what I forget what's the name of the, the the alphabet that they use in that way. The Alpha Bravo, you know, Charlie Delta. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, sort of yeah. Thing. yeah, yeah. Um, again, I, I like that they're showing the rebellion, the the starts of this rebellion using this old imperial tech against them and uh so we have the scene where skeen tells andor uh the tamaran uh used uh, he used to be a stormtrooper what do you think was going on here because the first time i saw the scene i didn't know what to make out of it and then you know the second go around when i was watching this for the to record this episode i was like oh it's is this skeen laying the track down trying to lay the ground for to get Andor to abandon the group later on. No, I think this is, I mean, that's potential, but I, th- I think what it really does uh, as far as the show is concerned and the narrative um, is it establishes the intensity with which um, there's, there's so much of a hate from uh, Cinta for the empire and for, you know, any, anyone she encounters, because like he says, her entire family was uh, killed by, uh, that stormtrooper unit. So when she comes in, you know, guns blazing, and you know her her purpose there is revealed in that moment as well. Yeah, and even we, then, she's willing to work with him for this yeah. cause. I think it's interesting too that they don't actually give Cinta any opportunity to give any of the exposition for herself firsthand. That that she's sort of the one that's quiet and stoic, and everyone sort of talks around her. And I think that's actually an interesting character choice as well, especially since she's the one who volunteers ultimately to stay behind as an Imperial in, in those last moments. Yeah. Uh, so the rebel group pose first as some of the Eldani uh, pilgrims, but then as the Imperial soldiers who were called in from El Kenzie, which was actually an air force or air base that's 50 clicks away that was mentioned uh, i think two episodes ago so it's so been, uh it's been i think it's been in in the last two yeah they, yeah they mentioned it yeah so it, it just uh it's interesting that like things that they kind of laid the the ground for two episodes ago like in like a simple line are coming into a bigger play in this episode um so we meet the commandant's wife and son and uh i think this scene is interesting because well the son is always sick uh is that because the the planet or whatever she wants off the planet but i think the scene is interesting because we don't usually see the family of like an imperial officer and uh it's, it's interesting to give humanity e- even though he's kind of I don't know. He, he seems like the asshole of the, fam- of the family anyways. Uh, but what, what did you guys think of this scene? I I really enjoyed how it creates a contrast. Like, I think that theme of the choices before people that that uh, the commandant talks about as in, in relation to the Aldani, I think that there's an interesting contrast in the choices that he has in front of him. And his choices are like, you know, the choices he's putting in front of his kid are like, wear this imperial blouse or I'll smack you in the face or whatever. Like everything, everything he does is with that philosophy, it seems like a little bit. Um, but also uh, the choices that are before him personally range from like, do I wear this nice thing and force my kid to wear this versus the Aldani losing their entire way of life? And it speaks to that imperial arrogance um, and they're, 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 you know, fat and sassy ways that Cassian talked about in episode three. Also, I, I love that the, the fact that this fulfills that, uh, literally that promise of like how fat the empire has gotten because his belt doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what Brad, his, but I thought his belt shrunk according to him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in the next scene, Lieutenant Gorn meets with the chieftain and the Oani pilgrims and welcomes them using native Aldani language, which I think is, I don't know, the, the, the writing in this show is just so good because obviously he had 
relations with an Eldani. And, you know, of course he speaks the Eldani language. And of course you need someone uh, from the group that's occupying this planet to, to communicate with them. Um, So there's this, uh, this cool shot of Vel and Sinta being towed underwater kind of as like the, the first meteors light the sky above there's actually a lot of cool, like very cool imagery in this episode. And uh, they infiltrate the dam and set up a piece of electronics, which was later used to take out the uh, take out the uh, communications. And uh, Vel nervously radios that the mission is a go. Why do you guys think that she was so reluctant at first to give the, the go ahead? I mean, it's a big move, you know, regardless of how confident they feel in the heist itself, which they probably really don't like it's they're about to all put their lives on the line, you know, yeah. so it's it's just, I think, natural to have that last minute hesitation. So, I think, mean, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the Imperials partake in a custom at the ancient temple where they exchange pelts and kind of uh, the commandant kind of makes fun of it beforehand which i think brad was that what you were talking about or like they're kind of like participating in it but they're yeah, obviously, it's, yeah. i mean yeah yeah it's just full respect like they're doing it just to get what they want and just the you know the way that they're going through the motions and it's just yeah it's despicable and it's interesting because i think both sides of this don't respect each other but they're participating in this this ritual and at the end the chief then instructs gorn to tell the commandant that the Aldani ghosts have, quote, strong hands and long memories, which uh, Gorn does not relay that message. Brian, what do you think that's about? Well, I thought that was a really interesting moment where where Gorn wants everything to run smoothly until he can get uh, Commandant Behaz into, um, you know, into the trap, right? So if the Aldani start making a problem there there's every chance the plan could go off off schedule or off book and so it's him just trying to smooth that out and get through it as quickly as possible so that they can just get back and things can get into motion yeah i think it's clever that nobody else that's at that meeting knows that he's not translation translating the chief gives him a look though like yeah and it's almost like a look where he's like he's curious as like, wait, why did you do that? You know? Cause it's, I think he realizes that a, he's maybe protecting them, but also B it's like, you know, why wouldn't you tell them that to give them an opportunity to, you know, potentially retaliate. Oh, see so you read it as the chief knows English and knew that he didn't relay the message. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Go watch that moment again. And you huh. see that knowing look between Gordon and the chief. And it's, it's pretty striking. Okay. So, uh, the undercover rebels escort the commandant into the garrison and it's here where basically shit goes down <laughs> the whole rest of the episode uh is is uh one big action uh throwing set piece so the rebel group reveal themselves uh taking uh the group at gunpoint but the uh one of the guys the colonel i think yeah won't back down and it's this short but tense situation where uh, someone's going to get shot. But thankfully, Cinta takes him out as she arrives with Vel. Um, it was a cool, I don't know, it was a, it was a cool ramped up moment that kind of uh, subsided really quickly. And I like that. Um, so the Commandant claims that he doesn't control the vault. But the rebel group knows the truth because obviously they have inside sources here. Uh, Val says, one path, one choice, we win or everyone dies. Which to, to me feels like something like Saw Gerrera would say and not the earliest well, rebels. And that makes me wonder if she's um, she's going to end up with Saw's partisans and that maybe that's where this money is heading. Maybe she's two tubes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> okay, the, the the group escorts the commandant to the viewing room uh, where he was to be greeted with some light snacks and refreshments. And uh, 
I recognize these glasses from one of two places, either Solo, a Star Wars story on uh, Dryden Voss's yacht, or the Sublate Lounge on the Galactic Star Cruiser, the Halcyon. Um, so it, it's fun, funny that they're reusing so, some of the same uh, glassware there. Um, okay, so the comps have been disabled, and Andor takes over the observation tower, and Commandant's family is bound and gagged. And uh, I don't know. Where do we go from there? So, okay, Val and Cinta have a moment together before they have to split up. And I, I really like this moment. It wasn't like a big thing, but you kind of got the how much they mean to each other just from that simple moment. I thought they were I, I, like I, I got the impression specifically that maybe they were together even. Yeah, yeah I no, think, that's I think what so. I got, too. Yeah. But it was like so subtle. It wasn't like spelled out in any. Well, this is still a Disney show, Peter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yes, a Disney show, Brian, that started at a. uh, At a brothel. A brothel. brothel. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Um, So the the rebels escort the commandant to the. Depot where the guards are playing some sort of hex card game. And Brian, I have to ask you because it's probably the only thing in Star Wars lore that I don't know about here. Is this a new game? Because this isn't Sabacc. Um, you know, I I was so focused on all the other details and my excitement about the Gorman massacre that I didn't even uh I didn't even notice. Uh carry on and I'll look for a minute. Give me give me just a minute. <laughs> I just assumed Brian was going to know that. Know this. A- anytime I say, uh, off, th- this is probably a result of me spending so much time in Galaxy's Edge. Anytime in a Star Wars movie or t- TV show I see food or I see a game, I'm like, ooh, am I going to get to play that game? Am I going to get to eat or drink that food at some point? <laughs> so I, uh, that's where my mind goes. Even though obviously the the episode was not was not um, focused on that. Uh, so they disarm the guards and take over the freighter. You know, that's one sentence, but it took a lot longer than that. And the, the commandant's hand opens the payroll vault and they make the soldiers quickly transfer the credit tubes using these trolleys. And uh, I love how these credit tubes look. It's it's like a, the Star Wars version of like, you know, Fort Knox. It's like how you'd you know, uh, wrangle all the credits together. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny too, though, just in a world where everything can be digital with transfers and stuff, they're still hauling payroll and very heavy ingots of Imperial credits and stuff. It's, it definitely leads to that, uh, you know, that old school world war two sort of heist thing, or even more recently with like, David O. Russell's Three Kings, or I guess this was the entire, like Kelly's Heroes was sort of that that backstory as well, you know, of stealing the the gold. You do bring up an interesting question, though, Brian. Like in a world where they have all this technology, even though it looks like, you know, it's futuristic but outdated, why isn't there a digital currency? Well, to be fair, we have digital currency today, but we also still have physical currency. There has to be some kind of tangible value placed upon such a thing as money, so as there, you know, it, it to not just be created out of thin air. Even though that's literally what we do with you know money anyway, but like you know, in this case, it makes sense to actually have tangible uh, currency. And with that, Brad has gotten inundated by emails from people who collect bitcoin and nfts oh go ahead just yeah (laughs) whatever well i think um i mean there was definitely like you could still go to a bank and still get like letters of credit and stuff in world war ii yeah um and they could definitely pay people in the script um but uh you know, I, 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 Plus there's also, there's also I'm, not, no... I'm not criticizing it. I'm, I'm just, it's something that I never thought about before you bring it up is like, why, why do they still have physical credits? I mean, there's um, also no tracing physical credits either. Yeah. Yeah. True. Uh, okay. So the Aldani tribe is doing a ritualistic chant and dance and uh, two pilgrims uh, cover the fire with this giant metal snuffer 
just as the meteor shower starts to fill the night sky. And I got to say, like, this is some of the most beautiful, like, imagery we've gotten from a Star Wars TV show so far. Like this, uh, this whole, uh, whatever you want to call it, this occurrence. The eye. The The eye. eye. Yeah. Phenomenon. Phenomenon. Um, Yeah. I think it's not only does it work as a functional piece of the heist as a way to help it make, help them get away easier, but it's also just a, a beautiful, you know, visual background setting for as everything I think, unfolds. I think one of my favorite shots in this is just it's so beautifully shot, but it's the the shot with the TIE fighter in silhouette with the pilot sort of coming down into the TIE fighter with the eyes sort of out yes. in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was so gorgeous, and it just looked so good. Um, on the the game, it, it appears to be some mix between like dominoes and poker, and they say words uh, hexla, hexa, and hexbo, um, which leads me to believe the game has something to do with hex. Um, but th- I, there wasn't anything I could find about it, so it, it may well be new. Yeah. Hmm. Well, someday soon you'll b- probably be able to buy it at the Toy Darian Toy Maker in the marketplace. Well, I'm sure, but too, they wouldn't yeah. miss that trick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so at Al Kenzi Air Command, pilots climb down into their TIE fighters, and that—that's that, that uh, image that you just mentioned, that with the like the sky behind it, and um, the uh, Corporal, uh, uh, the uh, wait, who who was it that someone comes in? Is it Kinsey? Yeah, Kinsey comes in just as the commandant has like a heart attack and uh this basically creates a a firefight begins between kinsey and his men and uh in the process terramen gets shot i i will say this okay if i'm gonna give one criticism to this episode i feel like you guys are not gonna agree with me here but if i'm gonna give one criticism to this episode i feel like i didn't feel the deaths in an emotional way that I should have. I mean, that you're broken isn't the fault of the episode, Peter. <laughs> I mean, that that is true. You, you, you are correct, Brian. You are correct. Uh, no, I, I, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely think that there was some more work that could have done that. And I definitely felt some deaths more than others, but I think part of that was the, speed at which they're introducing the characters and eliminating them and how this is structured rather than um, anything nefarious. Yeah. I I wonder if it's also the score. Um, I just feel like it wasn't playing for the emotional beats of it as much as it was playing for the tension and the action. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's definitely the case, which is why you see like Nemec's death is a lot more impactful as is skeins more so than than tamarins or or anyone else because they're played for that emotion later more than in the heat of the fight yeah so uh vault soldier tries to take out Cassian in the freighter but nemec takes him out with a blast at the last second and uh they're forced to leave uh tamarin's body behind as andor takes off and it's kind of cool to see this freighter accelerate it's like on this rail and it goes through this like tunnel before like launching into space which i know they kind of described it on a previous ep- uh episode but it was not what i pictured at all of this freighter um so unfortunately as the freighter launches into the tunnel, one of the trolleys filled with the credit tubes crushes Nemec, and they're able to pull him out, but he can't feel his legs, which is never a good sign. And uh, Val s- stabs a med spike injector into his chest, which had, like, Pulp Fiction vibes. <laughs> I didn't think we were ever, ever see that in Star Wars. Uh and again, we have some fantastic imagery of the freighter launching into the eye as the meteor shower is uh, its going like, hit, like right into the meteor shower. And uh, Andor is left flying blind because he doesn't know where to go. And 
at this point, the TIE fighters that took off from El Kenji are in close pursuit. And Inder is finally able to punch in the star path coordinates. And the TIE fighters are destroyed by meteors as the freighter escapes. It's really throwing beautiful uh, sequence. Um, Nemec is still alive. And Skeen wants to bring him to the doctor, which was built into the contingency. But Val doesn't want to risk it. And Cassian sides with Skeen. Knowing what we know now and what Skeen proposes next, do you think do you think he had other motives or do you think he actually cared about Nemec? Yeah, I mean, I think that this probably gave him a, a chance for them to stop somewhere and like have a moment where he would be able to pull off his betrayal uh, without, you know, making it more difficult on him. So I think that's probably that motivation. Yeah, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, he really cares for Nemec. And then the second time, I, and, and that actually, like, when he proposed the thing later on, I was like, oh, wow, he's just screwing everybody over. But the second time I watched it, I was like, I'm pretty sure he was using that as an excuse to try to convince Andor and, and to kind of take off with the money. But, uh, okay, so uh, they land on a foggy moon surface, which is, which has this goggled humanoid looking alien, but with four arms performing surgery on Nemec's injuries. And uh, what did you think of this guy? That's, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that that's this, a similar species as Maz Kanata, right? No, um, Maz. So that's what I kind of thought initially, just because of the goggles and the, you know, the artificial intelligence things on his sides, but Maz only has two arms and is much more diminutive and, and short. Um, is it possible unless, that the, the males in that species that do have four arms and are they're, they're full size? I mean, that, yeah. that could be possible, but he, uh, I don't know. I mean, that could be possible. I don't think we've seen anything quite like this before. Um, for the record, his name is Quadpa. Huh. Uh, was that in the credits, I'm assuming? Yeah, and I found a, a tweet from one of the one of the performers working the arms about how excited he was. For th- that, yeah, that's 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 great because I, I feel like this is so very lo-fi. This feels very like old school Star Wars where <laughs> clearly like I used to do this with my with my sisters and stuff as a kid, like where you'd, you know, put, they'd put their hand, they'd be behind you and put their hands in like your, you know, yeah, your no, armholes it, of the jacket. Yeah. It reminded me very much of the Swedish chef. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a bad way. I love the Swedish chef. Don't get me wrong. It was, it was fun. I mean, yeah. yeah if you don't love the Swedish chef, you're a monster. That, that is a hundred percent fact. Okay. So outside skiing, uh, breaks my heart by pitching a plan to Cassian to ditch this group completely, split the spoils uh, evenly with him, which probably 40 million credits each. That's a lot of money, a lot of credits. And uh, Skeen needs Cassian because he can't fly the the freighter. And uh, am I wrong, but he, he admitted to lying about his backstory? Is that what happened um, there? I mean, he said that, but like, um, it seems like he's going to say anything in that moment. Yeah, I felt like it could go either way, too, that he could have been lying just to, you know, give himself a backstory and garner some semblance of sympathy. But also he could be, you know, saying that it's not true now just to make it look like he really doesn't care, even if yeah. that were part of his story. I will say this was the most shocking moment of the entire episode for me because i just didn't see this coming that one of these members was gonna try to ditch with 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 the money did either of you see this coming no not at all and i if anything you know this this is one of the things that makes me love the show even more because like since the beginning we've talked about how the vibe here is how you can't trust anybody and you don't really know who anybody really is and this just you know heightens that even more like that you, you can't even trust somebody who seems like they're in on this cause and you, you know, you can't even trust whether or not his, you know, his lie is actually a lie. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's so there's, it shows just how 
desperate people are during these times and that just deceit and distrust, you know, is everywhere because of it. Well, and it made me wonder too, like it could have gone the other way and they ended the scene in such a place where it still could have gone the other way, where Skeen was just trying to actually test Cassian so that he could kill him first. If Cassian's like, yep, let's do it. Right. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and Cassian just goes like, nope, I'm going to end this now before this gets worse. And I'm going to solve this problem for everybody. At the time, I thought it was a very impulsive way to end it. But now that you've kind of laid it out of, there's no way to walk away from that with one of them being alive. I mean, with both of them being alive. Because there's no way they're going to agree to not do it and then go back and work with the group. Yeah, and what what is what is what is um, what does Cassian tell Vel if he doesn't go with it, and then all of a sudden Skeen goes like he uh, he passed the test, uh, you know, like there's no good way for Cassian to get through that, or it's just like nope, he was going to take all the money and I killed him. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I also think this is interesting because Andor obviously took this mission. Um, it seemed like when he took this mission, it was for the credits, right? Like it wasn't like he was invested at that time, but all of a sudden now I feel like he has a different view. Do you think it's because he's hearing Skeen who is kind of a, um, an all good fiction. You have uh, mirrors of the, the protagonist. And I feel like Skeen is, is clearly a mirror mirror of, of Cassian here and maybe Cassian is realizing when he sees Skeen offer this that he doesn't want to be him. Well, I mean, Cassian is still, like, I think a bit removed from that because Cassian is using this as an opportunity to, like, get away rather than, you know, fully be entrenched in the rebellion itself. Whereas, you know, Skeen feels like he is someone who is just like living off of, you know, from one scheme and, and con to the next. And with Cassian, he's, I think there's still part of him that, you know, wants this to succeed for those who do believe in it because he hates the empire so much, but he's also only willing to risk his neck so much, you know, at least at this point in his, in his life uh, and just wants what he was promised and then is ready to get out of there. Well, yeah, no, Cassian doesn't want the job of a, re- a rebel, right? And he doesn't want the weight of someone looking after his, you know, someone chasing after him or him looking over his shoulder. He doesn't want to get involved. He just wants the money, which he thinks can solve all of his problems. I think Cassian is probably going to take all of his money and head back to Ferrix and think that he'd be okay and be able to lay low. Yeah, I mean, that's all all, all good points. Uh, So... Uh, he shoots Skeen and uh, Andor comes in to see that the doctor was not successful. Nemec did not make it. Andor explains what happened to Val, who doesn't believe him at first. And uh, Andor is taking his cut, what he was promised. He's leaving. And uh, in this moment, he gives Val back Luthen's Kyber ne- Sky Kyber necklace. Which, uh, do you think Val was going to give him Nemec's manifesto before that? It felt like something changed. Like, she didn't believe him, but then he was like, I just want what I was promised. Here's the necklace. And she knows how much the necklace means to Luthen. Do you think that was the the result of that is uh, giving him what Nemec uh, wanted him to have? I think it's a mix of both. I think that there's definitely that part of it where him giving back the necklace shows that he's just not, you know, trying to get away with whatever he can. You know, he he does have some, you know, moral and ethical backbone and isn't just trying to screw them over. But also, I think that maybe there's a hope for her that giving him that manifesto might convince him to either stay or if he does still leave, you know, maybe come back. It gives him kind of something to... Uh, hold on to and you know stick in the back of his mind yeah um meanwhile mon mothma is giving a speech at the senate arguing for the basic rights of all gormen what is going on uh with the with the speech 
Brian? Is it is it just like fluff before we get to the the disruption? How how dare you think there's fluff written on this show, sir? <laughs> um, no, this is actually this is the thing I got so excited about after watching the episode because what they're really doing is laying the groundwork for us to see all of the work Mon Mothma does to try to stay in the Senate and what ultimately is going to force her to leave. Um, the massacre of the Gorman people is what prompts her to finally leave her family and her station on Coruscant and join the rebellion finally. And she cites it specifically in her speech to the galaxy, publicly blaming Palpatine for the massacre of these people um, in the Star Wars Rebels episode, Secret Cargo. And that's three years from now. That happens two years before the Battle of Yavin. And this is still five years before the Battle of Yavin. And so we're, we're seeing her work on this and pay attention to these issues. And she's going to grind through that bureaucracy for the next three years until she finally gets out. It really sets up a timeline for us about what these things are happening. But the Gorman Massacre is really interesting in and of itself. They haven't explained it in the new canon so, so much but going back to old books and, of course, uh, West End role-playing game material, um, the Gorman Massacre was actually... There are people that were very mistreated and, and did not like the imperial taxation that they were going through. And at one point, there was a group of protesters out on a landing platform. Thousands of protesters. And they were protesting the Empire not allowing Tarkin's ship to land. And with the tacit approval of Palpatine himself, Tarkin just lands the ship on the protesters, killing most of them. And they were peaceful protesters. Yeah, yeah. And so, I don't know. It's it's really interesting to see how that lore, both f for Mon Mothma's future and the past of Star Wars, sort of tie in so that we don't just get a fluff scene where in the Senate, she's seeing that everyone's distracted and no one cares about what she's talking about anyway. And she realizes it's because of this Aldani thing, right? Like this is hitting the news on Coruscant this day, but like also like no one's in the Senate, no one cares. And it's a stark contrast to the scenes of the Senate that are just packed full of people uh, and alien species across the galaxy, ranging from Wookiees to, you know, ET. Um, there's barely anyone here and no one cares. It's because the Senate is very much a show now rather than rather than something important. And I think that's reflective in our own world too, right? Like if you watch C-SPAN, it's interesting that like when they show close-ups of the senators talking or the Congress people talking, it always feels like it's very lively. And, and, you know, especially like if you ever watch Bernie Sanders get up there and give one of his fiery speeches and they cut away to the wide shots and there's like, no one in the Senate. <laughs> um, that's pretty much what happens to Mon Mothma here. And so I think it's a really powerful scene where it says a lot about the political situation, a lot about where the Imperial Senate is, a lot about where her focus is, especially if you know the forward moving story of Gorman and about how powerless she is. So it works on a whole lot of levels, combining that that visual storytelling, the lore storytelling and the character work together. I am a little bit surprised that the news of this has kind of spread as wide as it did because I would feel like the Empire would want to keep that internal, like maybe with ISB. Do you know what I mean? Like they wouldn't want – like they're all about like what it looks like to the the outside, uh, I guess, galaxy, not world. The outside galaxy of them having control. And this make like uh, news of this makes it look like they don't have control. So I'm actually kind of surprised that it would it would go out so wide. No, no. So so think about from a propaganda standpoint, right? You need an enemy, right? Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. And so having these stories about like how dare these people, um, how dare these people pull this heist? We need to bring them to swift justice. The same way Palpatine did in the Senate when he says, like, look, the Jedi were responsible for all of this. The um, what else were they going to say? Oh, uh, we do go to ISB and we see 
them having like this uh, uh, meeting where they're going to put together a plan. Well, now, now be careful because it specifically says this is not a meeting. <laughs> it's a uh, yes. It's uh, not a meeting. They're called for a star sector and planetary emergency uh, retaliation plan is what it is. What, what does that even mean? It means where to fuck shit up. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think I think Brad has the long and the short of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, and we'll get to that in speculation just in a minute. But uh, Luthen, we, we get to see him where he learns the news from someone who's just uh, in his shop and he goes to his back workshop where he is relieved and happy that all went to plan. And I feel like you get the sense that this is the beginning that he spoke of last week. And um, is, is there anything left to say about this episode before we get into speculation, Brian? No, I think uh, I think it's a pretty classic World War Two caper set with that 70s drama that's that is making the show very attractive to me. Brad, yeah, any anything good. I missed? No, good good stuff all around. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I I think this is my favorite episode so far. This is a uh, w- w- was very solid. Uh, let's get into speculation. The, the the ending was kind of unexpected with Andor leaving the Rebel group. I, I kind of assumed once he got involved with the Rebel group, the rest of the series was going to be him kind of helping this Rebel group, but he's going out on his own. Brad, where do you see this heading? Well, I think, like Brian mentioned earlier, I, I think that he probably feels like now that he has what he needs to, you know, potentially, you know, make some kind of new life or getaway, that he's going to be able to, like, just move forward and, you know, not have to worry about being pursued anymore. Um, but I think he'll learn very quickly that that's probably not possible. Um, and so he'll, he'll of course, have to get caught back up uh, in, you know, the, the rebel cause again, uh, whether it's because he has nowhere else to go or, you know, because the, maybe the, the empire, uh, really starts closing in on him. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I think if anything, this is an important step, you know, it, because it shows that, you know, and, and, or has been able to see how desperate the rebellion is, you know, what, what these, how, how delicate these situations are and what he can do to, to help with that. But he also, you know, just like any hero's journey, he has to, uh, you know, reject it at a pivotal moment before he actually returns to it. Yeah, I think he's going to go back to Ferrex. Ferrex, do you do you think he's going to go there, Brian? I think that's an eventuality. He might still try to lay low for a while. We might skip in time some and see him coming back later. Um, but I do think, I do think he is going to end up there, which is why even after he was gone, they still showed us in I want to say episode four. Um, the ISB folks like setting up there and giving that guy that hotel and things like that. Like, yeah, it's going to be a very different Ferrex when we go back eventually. Because this is supposed to be uh, like an entire year, right? This this first season. Yeah, season one is an entire year, and then each three episode arc in season two covers a year on its own. Yeah, so there's there's got to be a time jump here yeah. in the first season somewhere. I was going to say I would have to estimate from the first six episodes alone. We're not more than a couple weeks. Yeah. Like, it doesn't seem like that much time has gone by in that first three episode arc. And then the second three episode arc, I think he came in with, what, five days or six days to the heist. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good point, Brad. They're, they're probably going to have to jump forward at some point. Uh, I do feel like people are going to finally start, start listening to Dedra now. Yeah, no, and she's going to add this. And, and and the thing is, is that no one, everyone's suspicious of her and think it's all random, but she's actually right. This is connected to that star path unit. Yeah. Um, any other speculation, any, any other thoughts of where this could might be heading, where you want to see it heading? Just, I... I really hope we get to see the Gorman massacre. <laughs> Do you, you actually mean, think that's going to play out? I think I think it will, right? Like I think that's a, a key component of Mon Mothma's character and the thing that gets her to leave this bureaucracy and her family. And so I think that as a character moment, it's a natural endpoint. 
especially if they're leading right up into Rogue One, we're going to have to see her on Yavin. So even if they don't show it, we're going to have to skip past it and and see the ramifications of it one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. You make a good point. It's something I thought was was literally, I just thought they were looking for something to put in her mouth when she she found out everything that was happening. I think you've made a very compelling point of why it's essential to her character arc moving forward. So, so maybe we'll at least hear about the massacre. Well, uh, and I mean, Tony Gilroy has been, he's been doing interviews and like, he's been very vocal about talking about it too. So he knows exactly what's going on with it. Yeah. Okay. So I think that brings us to the end of today's slash home daily. You can, if you have any speculation Feedback, questions, comments, concerns, send it to peter.com. Uh, you can read Brian's recap of every one of these episodes on slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please rate and read this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be Ben, I think, doing some news. And then uh, I'll be back with Brad on Friday for the She-Hulk episode. It's going to be one day later than normal. We'll see you then. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.